This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch covering Fearless 2011 from Boston's Wonderland Ballroom from June 3rd, 2011. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed or on our own dedicated Open the Voice Gate feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate, it would certainly be appreciated. There's no requirement whatsoever, no obligation. But you could find that in the show link or at redcircle.com slash open-voice-gate. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. And I'm joined as always by Case Lowe. And Case, we're already to the second anniversary weekend in DGUSA. And it felt like it took us a long time, but also felt like this has gone by really fast. Yeah, the second year from the first anniversary show to the second anniversary show has flown by. And this is a loaded triple shot weekend. There's a lot going on, not only in this company, but in the wrestling world. The spring and early summer of 2011 was just a a huge time for the industry. You know, things were shifting and moving in ways that are currently being felt in the present day. There's a lot that we're going to cover over the next three episodes. This one, we're obviously talking about Fearless 2011 and going over... Uh, the big points from the Gabe Newswires leading up to the show. Next week, we'll be going over a an in-depth dive of the landscape in Japan at the time. And then two weeks from now, we'll be talking about the U.S. indie scene and breaking down all of the business acquisitions that are going on there. But to start off the show today, uh, we do feel that it is worth mentioning at the top of this first set of three shows Uh, that in between WrestleMania weekend and here, which is June 3rd, 2011, when Fearless took place, on April 11th, 2011, the wrestling world lost Larry Sweeney, uh, a death that still stings to this day, and uh, we just felt like we should mention that up top. Yeah, and this is one that has a lot of connections, not like directly to DGUSA, but it's something that for a long time... uh, Larry Sweeney was kind of a presence that went from Chikara to Ring of Honor. He worked with Gabe Sapolsky for a good while, and he was someone that, you know, that happened nine years ago. I still explicitly remember, like, hearing about this. Like, this was one of those deaths that, like, really kind of, at least for me, like, resonated in a way that most, uh, the only, uh, like, other death that kind of, like, struck me in a similar way was the recent passing of Hanukkah Kimura. And, 
you know, with like Larry Sweeney, he was someone that at the time everyone was like, Oh, this is great. This is great. But it's something that like, even now in uh, retrospect and now seeing that now we're living in a day and age that, uh, that like one of his best friends in the business, like his sworn brother, Eddie Kingston now has an AEW contract and just makes you think like, damn, this is a guy that if like he had a lot of uh, problems, a lot of, uh, mental health uh concerns and if he was able to like be around today it just makes me wonder like what 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 larry sweeney could have been doing for the last like years and i wouldn't have been stunned if there was a way that larry sweeney ended up somehow in dragon gate usa in one fashion or another i don't remember the first time that i saw larry sweeney but i definitively remember in my early forays in independent wrestling like 2013 2014 being obsessed with Larry Sweeney promos and just finding them to be so different and unique and loving the sweet and sour work that he did in Ring of Honor. I have often joked about how if you talk to Chris Hero at the merch table within 60 seconds, you're uh, looked at, you, you look at Chris Hero like he's your best friend. Like he's just so kind and engaging, and I was at a Ring of Honor show that Chris Hero was on in 2014, and at the time, uh, I was really into getting my Ring of Honor compilation DVD signed, and and handed Chris Hero his Ring of Hero DVD, and as soon as he gets it, he's like, did you watch the, the bonus features on this? I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, those promos with Larry Sweeney, man, those... I mean, he was just brilliant. You know, we just, we just, you know, set the camera up and we shot all these promos and Larry did them first take and they're still so funny. And I was like, I, I know, it was unbelievable. And, you know, it, it comes up on, you know, every April 11th, just kind of an outpouring of Twitter support from, again, you know, your people's like, like Eddie Kingston that just thought the world of Larry Sweeney. And it's just a, a, a horrible loss that is, is, it speaks to Larry Sweeney's talent that it is still being felt in the professional wrestling industry today. And, you know, his death occurred on April 11th. And then a mere four days later, April 15th, 2011, uh, King of Trios began, which was an emotional weekend for the Chikara promotion. And while two episodes from now, we'll kind of go big picture on the U.S. Indies. Uh, we're going to talk about King of Trios 2011 for a second, because this is peak Chikara. Other than a John Moxley shoot DVD, these three DVDs are still the best-selling things Smart Mark Video has ever put out. And the, these these shows had a significant DGUSA appearance on there. I mean, Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano as members of Fists were part of the show, but even more so, we got the uh, Dragon Gate team was there as they flew out Super Shisa and Kakatora for these two shows, which is such a wild thing considering that neither of them to my knowledge or my recollection, ever worked DG USA, but Mike Quackenbush got them over for um, got them over for this like weekend, and this was like really like peak DG uh, peak Chikara like to a level that just like everything since then kind of has been chasing in a lot of ways. And speaking of Eddie Kingston, he has a really fun match on this weekend with Akira Tozawa that's worth going our way for. It's not one of like the top tier Akira Tozawa in America excursion matches, but it's one of the ones that is as good as you would expect, thinking that it's Eddie Kingston versus Akira Tozawa. Mike, true or false, this is the only time that Kagatora worked in the United States. False, he did a, uh, he did a, uh, no, a DDT4. He did a DDT4 in 2008. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be Kagatora and Kota Ibushi, 
But Ibushi got hurt, and who replaced him? Well, none other than L. Blazer, the man we know as Sugi. And on the High Spots Wrestling Network night two of the DDT4 tournament, there is a match between Kevin Steen and El Generico versus Kagatora and Sugi that I know I've seen, I don't remember it, but I need to go back and rewatch that because that sounds wonderful. Mike, I'm also going to read you just a few of the matches that took place this weekend because on paper, there is just uh, nothing like this. You know, we've got on the first night, the Team Drangate team, Akira Tozawa, Kagatora, Super Shisa. Well, they wrestle Frightmare, Hollow Wicked, and Ultramantis Black. That sounds terrific. There's also on night one, Jigsaw, Manami Toyota, and Mike Quackenbush against the SATs of Amazing Red and the Maximo Brothers. Night two, there's a four-way match that I'll throw at you. El Generico, Marche Rocket, Pinky Sanchez, and Zack Sabre Jr. in a ridiculous-sounding <laughs> four-way matchup within the main event that night. Dick Togo, Jinsei Shinzaki, and the great Sasuke, Team Michinoku Pro, defeating Jigsaw, Minami Toyota, and Mike Quackenbush. And on the final night, there is obviously the Colony versus Team Fist finale, as well as El Generico versus the 1-2-3 Kid. There was so much good stuff on these three shows. Yeah, I remember Zack Sabre Jr. and their uh, Ray de Voldores, which was like a high flyers tournament that they always put together as, hey, you've been eliminated in a tournament. This gives you something like to do during this. And Zack Sabre Jr. says, like, I don't fly. But what I do is I'm going to put people in arm bars and I'm going to tap people out. I'm going to submit people and I'm going to become the Ray de Voldores by doing that. And that was well. And also, this is where like the cult of great Sasuke being obsessed with Bon Jovi started. Because oh, well, oh, oh, I don't think I know about this. All right, so they all went to, and this used to be up on YouTube. I think it's now pulled down. They, there would be like a karaoke bar that they would go to, and Great Sasuke, big into karaoke, big into Bon Jovi, and apparently, like he got up there at the end of the night and did "It's My Life" and brought down the house, like not even looking at the screen. <laughs> and that's why at Joey Janela Spring Break Two, they had to do a sing along of "It's My Life." I was going to ask if you, one, remembered uh, Joey Janela's Spring Break or Spring Break 2, and then two, if that ever came up during the process. I mean, I do remember these shows. This was during the era of where VOW uh, editor Rich Craig put me up to, hey, Mike, if you're going to review this show, you should review it in the proper fashion. And yeah, that's probably going to haunt me until my dying day, at least doing wrestling stuff that my review of Joey Janela Spring Break 1. And then the thing about Joey Janela Spring Break 2 with that, it was like 4 a.m. Whatever buzz I had at that time was gone. And then I was just at the point where I was like, I want to go to sleep. I want to get out of here. Like the venue was 20 minutes away from the Airbnb that we all had. And just was like, oh God. And I didn't get back into the Airbnb to like 5 a.m. from that show. Because how long, and Janela was getting pissed at everyone like wanting the show to be wrapped up because he wanted to have the sing-along. So... That those are my my memories of the first two Joey Janela Spring Breaks. Joey Janela Spring Break 2, Matt Riddle versus James Ellsworth, and David Starr versus Mike Quackenbush. I'm sure those matches hold up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are you ready on that incredibly sad note? Are you ready to get into the timeline of events that led us to Fearless 2011? Yeah, let's get into it. Let's let's get away from this topic. And let's get into the real. Topic oh my goodness, I know. I regret bringing it up, but I I was <laughs> I just awestrucken by those two matches on one card. But anyways, 
March 8th, 2011, Gabe Sapolsky and Dragon USA are excited to announce that they will be holding an event on June 3rd at Showcase Live at Patriots Place in Foxborough, Massachusetts. It's a world-class facility located right next to Gillette Stadium. But, Mike, some problems occurred, and on May 4th, it was announced that Showcase Live canceled the Drangit USA booking, but do not fear they will make up a date in that area that fans can attend. And a week later on May 11th, the June 3rd event was set for Revere, Massachusetts at the Wonderland Ballroom. And Gabe says this is a great location across from the old dog track where ECW had its shows back in the 90s. So, uh, Mike, any knowledge of the dog track that drank, or that uh, ECW used to run? No, I don't have any like memory of that, but you bringing up like the Patriots place thing. I do remember in the moment, like gaming, like we're going to a great facility. We're going to get a thing like this because even at this point, everyone was like DGUSA ran trash heaps for a lot of places. I mean, with the exception of like the, the, the big places, but I mean, like we look at like where they ran and for the uh, 2011 shit or the end of 2010. And like those places were going to be more of the same. And we've talked about how like the presidential ballroom in Atlanta was kind of a, did not feel like the right place and it had limitations here. So the idea this is going to be a world-class facility and Patriots place is like, okay, maybe they found a place with a higher ceiling. And alas, that was not to be. <laughs> On April 11th, it is announced that Tony Nice will be given a huge opportunity in Drangate USA. Uh, he was announced first for the June 4th show, but as we will talk about, on this show, he is on the June 3rd show as well. And also on April 22nd, it is announced that the championship challenge will take place on June 3rd and on June 5th in Manhattan, New York. The concept is simple. These are Gabe's words, not mine. The concept <laughs> is simple. Open the Freedom Gate champion Yamato and one half of the Open the United Gate champions Pac have challenged each other in an effort to become double champions. DGUSA Tag Team Champions Pac and Masato Yoshino are letting Yamato pick a partner of his choice for a title match on June 3rd based on their victory last time in Massachusetts at Bushida Code of the Warrior. And the show of respect in Atlanta, Yamato has decided to reunite Kamikaze USA and has selected Akira Tozawa as his partner. So the main event of this show, Pac and Masato Yoshino defending the Open the United Gate titles against Yamato and Akira Tozawa, which makes the Kamikaze USA disbandment look even dumber. And then on June 5th, Yamato defends the Open the Freedom Gate title against Pac. Now... I did not know this was actually a thing. This was not mentioned on commentary, but actually of Gabe things, this is not Gabe at like his complete total bullshit of the uh, stable shootout. Like this is definitely, this is like, okay, this makes sense. You've now made a back to back, like a little storyline going here about both these guys want to become double champions. So like, yeah, I, no, this I, is I, fine. This is harmless. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually Gabe like being creative for good purposes in my mind. <laughs> A rare, rare occurrence. We have the note on April 26th that in Japan, Masaki Mochizuki has formally joined, uh, or I guess has joined the formerly known as World One Stable of Masato Yoshino, BB Hulk, Pac, and Susumi Yokosuka. The new stable does not have a name yet, and they are currently at war against the Blood Warriors in Japan. And then we get a follow-up on May 16th, where Gabe notes that there has been a major stable shakeup in Japan, where there are now only two large stables, and these alliances will carry over to Drangate USA. So Gabe gives a recap, and we will go more in-depth on this next week, but the yeah. big picture to get you up to speed for this show 
Blood Warriors have turned on Dragon Kid, and he is now aligned with Masaki Mochizuki's unnamed stable. And Kamikaze has absorbed into Mochizuki's unnamed stable. Kamikaze is no more. So the lineups heading into Fearless are the Blood Warriors of Shima, Naruki Doi, Genki Horoguchi, Gamma, Brody Lee, Ricochet, Ryo Saito, Austin Aries, Cyber Kong, and Tomahawk TT. And the no-name Masaki Mochizuki stable is Mochizuki, BB Hulk, Pac, Masada Yoshino, Susuma Yokosuka, Dragon Kid, and Yamato, and Shingo. So we are seeing the formation of what would become Blood Warriors versus Junction 3, but the Junction 3 formation does not technically happen until right after our triple shot. Yeah, and that is, there's a lot of reasons we'll be talking about that June 8th core again. It's a probably one of the uh, top 10 most important uh, non-big event Dragon Gate shows of all time, maybe top 5. Just, like, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, and it's going to impact DGUSA, so we'll get into it. Just, like, I'm going to call this Mochizuki Army for now, just because it, before we know it, after this, like, run of shows, in four weeks, we'll be talking about Junction 3, but it's Junction 3. Yes, it's even more confusing because Masaki Mochizuki wears green tights on this show, but it's not actually Junction 3 yet, but that is something to keep on your radar. It should also be noted that Chuck Taylor had to pull off of these shows because of a groin injury. His match for Fearless 2011 was supposed to be Shima and Brody Lee versus Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan, which sounded excellent. But because Taylor had to pull off, the match became Shima versus Rich Swan, and they put Brody Lee in a six-way freestyle match, which is disappointing. As the weekend goes on, we will continue to update you on what Chuck Taylor's weekend would have looked like he would return on the next triple shot, whereas on May 18th, we found out that Chikara-san has decided to step away from the announcing booth to spend more time with his family. We thank him and his wife for all of their help and contributions to Dragon Gate USA. At the same time, we would like to welcome Rob Naylor to the broadcast team, and he will be starting on the June 3rd live iPay-Per-View. So Chikara-san outlasts the Chikara Sekigun by just a little bit. Mike, I thought he was a perfectly competent commentator throughout his time in Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, other than like the awkwardness of him still using his Chikara gimmick name, I thought everything about him and Lenny were great. I thought those two had great chemistry together. I feel like that Lenny is someone that, in a lot of ways, becomes the MVP of the WWN uh, family promotions, but he's probably... I would say I like him and Rob. Like him and Rob for like for a lot of what's gonna go on there will be him and Rob Naylor. They have great chemistry too, but for me, like it was always like for like the first two years it was it was uh, Lenny and Chuck Carson. And it was one of those things that we'll we'll get into this Rob that adds a different element to the broadcast that I think is very important and I think it's for people like Case and I, we, we very much like that element, but I thought that, that uh the former Leonard F. Chuck Carson was great in his role. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts on just the overall presentation of this show and how it differs from the Dragon Gate USA product of old because we're two years in now and, and things have drastically changed. But I will say up front, I thought Chikara-san was great. I think Rob Naylor was the perfect voice for this product at the time. Chikara-san, not the only person quitting Dragon Gate USA on May 3rd, is an, or May 23rd rather, 
it is announced that Jimmy Jacobs has quit Drangit USA after a dispute with DG USA officials about getting an open the Freedom Gate title match. DG USA officials would not grant him one, so he walked out. He will be best remembered for his feud against new WWE entertainer John Moxley last year, ending at Bushido Code of the Warrior in a Bloodbath I Quit match. His best wrestling match was at Open the Northern Gate against Shima. We would like to thank Jimmy Jacobs for all of his contributions. Mike, is it fair to say that he will be best remembered for the I Quit match and that his best wrestling match was the Open the Northern Gate Shima match? I think for once, Gabe's not working there. I think that he pretty much hit the nail on the head. And it was something that I knew Jimmy was on his way out after the Mania, but I didn't realize it was this soon after. And it just was like one of those wild things that like they definitely, and, and we'll talk more about it, about other people on the show who will be gone after this weekend, definitely felt like that there was still stuff uh, planning for these two. Mike, I remember I, I remember early on when Jacob showed up, and I'm, I'm quickly looking now to see what his first show was. Uh, it was it was fearless. It was the uh, fourth show in the company's history, January right. 2010, when he wrestled Brian Kendrick. And I remember you sort of groaning about how much Jimmy Jacobs there was in the promotion that you didn't realize he lasted all of the way through WrestleMania weekend 2011. Now that we have rewatched his entire run and there's the Brian Kendrick stuff, but there's also a handful of John Moxley matches. There's the Austin Aries match, which I seem to like more than you. Uh, there's a, a Brody Lee match that I really enjoyed what are your thoughts overall on Jimmy Jacobs running Drangate USA? I think my issue with that Austin Aries match isn't with Joey. It isn't with Jimmy. And I kind of encountered this issue on the show that we're going to review with Austin Aries. So, As did uh, I. <laughs> so, something to look forward to. Something we'll get into there. Uh, you know, he is someone that his role in the company and how I view things at the time or in close retrospect versus like this deeper perspective, this as soon as they got him out from doing stuff with, with Brian Kendrick, other than, like, his promos feeling samey, I was totally fine with Jimmy Jacobs. Like, it more often than not, the matches he had with Moxley, with the exception of a couple of appearances we talked about last week, were some of the best Moxley matches in the promotion. And the Shima matches, it, I don't know if we're going to, like, do, like, a huge, like, ranking thing when we're done with this, but that's definitely, like, one of those B-sides or deep-cut matches that's worth, like, if you're going to be doing it, if you're watching along with us, if you're doing it like this, that's not a match to sleep on because it's a surprisingly fun and just great match on a show that was not very great. Yeah, he's got three different Moxley singles matches, one in Canada, one in Chicago, and one in Massachusetts. And, you know, I think the I Quit match is great, and I think the other two are worth watching. I think that's a really solid feud. The Brian Kendrick stuff is bad, but everything Brian Kendrick did in Dragon USA was bad. And he's got that Shiba match as well. So, I, you know, I have said... Since he came in, the biggest mistake they made with Jimmy Jacobs was that he was opening DVDs that looked like Ring of Honor DVDs, cutting promos that felt like they would have been on a Ring of Honor DVD. But as a wrestler, you know, he wasn't exactly wrestling Shingo or Yamato, but he was put in positions where he could succeed, and for the most part, he did that. So Jacobs' run is one that maybe a decade later we look at a little bit more positively than people did at the time, because I really do not think he was a hindrance to these cards at all. No, no, and as we're going to get into it on this show, he was not the problem in Atlanta. <laughs> like, I'm now certain of that. And it's one of those things that, 
as we talked about, like John Moxley did not like working Dragon Gate style. He did not seem particularly high on working with Dragon Gate wrestlers. So having Jimmy there as his foil was perfect. So I feel like that it worked out in the end with those two. Our final note before we get into the show, June 2nd, it is announced that Top Rope Promotions will present the bonus card before the Revere, Massachusetts Fearless 2011 show. It will start at 7 p.m., which you don't need to know, but that's okay. It's in the notes. And it is a doubleheader with the Top Rope Promotions card featuring Vinny Marseglia versus Caleb Conley, Matt Magnum and Ryan Waters versus Brandon Webb and Matt Taven, and Lucius Latasha versus Barbie. Mike, you getting there early to watch the pre-show? Um, no, that's probably... <laughs> I, I, I will have my Golden Circle seat so I can get there early, but I'm going to get there early so that I can go to the merch table and see what uh, best of 2007 DVDs they have. <laughs> that's pretty much what I did at, when I went to these shows where I... I whenever like this shit happened, and we'll talk about this when we get to WrestleMania in Miami, I definitely like spent time like talking to uh, Colt Cabana about... Um, Chris Gethard, rather than watching a DJ Hyde match. So. We we could, a, a, a year from now when we're doing, or I guess a year in this timeline, we could have a lengthy Chris Gethard discussion as well, because I have a ton of Chris Gethard takes, most of them positive. Um, yeah, this undercard, I will have a ton of Caleb Conley takes when we hit 2013, and the possibly wasted potential of Caleb Conley as the last fighting man in Dragon Gate USA that was never capitalized on, but him <laughs> against Vinny Marseglia. Whew, man, I just, I don't know about that one, but that is, that is the timeline. Uh, I should note, just as we go along in this show, there are, if we include Pac, there are seven Japanese guys on this show, Dragon Gate Trueborns, and up top, the American presence on this show, I thought, was maybe not overbearing, but incredibly obvious. I don't know, Mike, just big picture. Did this show feel different than every other show we've watched? This is like one of the few shows, and we're going to get into this now, so I marked the time for people fast forwarding through timeline stuff. It, it's something where it felt like that this was one of the first real shows that was a slog for me. And I think a lot of that is because it did feel like that there were two different things happening and never shall they cross. Like other than like yes, that's Brody exactly Lee, it. other than like Brody Lee and the Mochizuki stuff, not really any interaction going on with this. And it's kind of a wild thing to think about because just going through the shows, uh, we should also note at this time, uh, Rich Swan is an assistant for uh, Mochizuki Army. Like that's something that we, that comes up a lot on these shows. Like so, I would consider him. I don't think he was on that last tour. When we when we talk more about the Japan stuff, I will probably correct myself and be wrong. But Shima versus Rich Swan—that's practically a Dragon Gate offer right there. Six six way freestyle. Brody Lee is in that, and Brody Lee is also someone that we'll be wrapping up very soon on this show. Susumu versus Ricochet, Dragon Gate offer. Misaki Mochizuki and Simon Callahan. There, the streams are crossing right there. John Davis versus. Pinky Sanchez diverging again, and then we have Austin Aries and versus Johnny Gargano still diverge, and then we had the World One team, or they still call them World One team, but it's the Mochizuki Army team versus the former Kamikaze USA. So felt like two different shows in a lot of ways. One one of the shows I really liked, and one of the shows I just had no time for. 
what were your thoughts about this overall overall did like did this like my weird analogy make sense to you no it's it's exactly what i was thinking there is no integration between the Drangate USA side of things and the Drangate side of things because Mochizuki versus Callahan is the start of, of they were doing a DUF versus Mochizuki weekend where Callahan wrestles Mochizuki tonight, uh, Cannon wrestles Mochizuki the next night, and then they do a tag match with Cannon and Callahan versus Mochizuki and Yokosuka on the third night. And that's a nice little story to tell. I get it. They're trying to get DUF over. I understand. But even that had like a like a special challenge match feel to it. Like it didn't feel part of a bigger picture the way right. that maybe a Johnny Gargano versus Shima from the first anniversary show, that match felt cohesive in the landscape of what Dragon Gate USA was. And then you've got, you know, a freestyle match that's all American, some of whom are very talented, but it's just, it's a lot of that. And, you know, Susumu versus Ricochet, fine little match, I, I consider Ricochet to be in a uh, one of the American imports. He is someone that got his footing in Dragon Gate USA and then became a star in Dragon Gate Japan. Whereas Pac's entire career is owed to Dragon Gate Japan, and he was a star when he came into Dragon Gate USA. So it's just a strange show. Uh, it's a strange show. I thought it was poorly paced. The last two matches take a long time to get through. And there's just, I mean, there, there. This show was low rent. I mean, this show felt like one of the dying days, 2013 Dragon Gate USA shows. There's yeah. problems with the entrance music throughout the entire show. We'll talk about it in the opener. Rich Swan doesn't come out to any entrance music. He's doing an acapella version of his rap, and it, it's, it's just bad. It, it, there's. It's bad. The microphone is cutting out. Guys have problems cutting promos the entire night. When Gargano comes out later, his entrance music cuts off halfway through. It's just the first show that really felt low rent. It felt like even if you have a Golden Circle ticket, there was no prestige to this show. It's just all, it's just a U.S. indie, and it's just another one, and they just happen to book some guys from Japan. And it was frustrating to watch. And to, like, further go on, like, the idea of, like, this felt O-Rent, this is, I think, the first show I was not able to find an exact attendance of. I, oh. Dave, Dave Meltzer and the Observer lists it as several hundred. And it, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's true, judging from some of the crowd shots we saw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, take a, I, I don't know if you have cage match open. Do you have cage match open right now? I do. Okay. Uh, have you looked at attendance yet? It says 525 people, which is not true. 525 people when you count everyone's family members, when you count <laughs> everyone in the back, when you count and everyone. All the boys in the back. Let's make sure we count them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, this is a classic DG work number. So, yeah, it's just, like, very low rent. I mean, we have ceiling issues on this show, too. Like, they're, like they finally kind of opened it up towards the end, but there are a lot of it, a lot of what some of these people's offenses are feel curtailed by it. I noticed that the ring wasn't a very good ring. Did you notice like how the, uh, the, the uh, ring canvas kept on skirting up during the show? On I people? did not. I, I, I noticed that specifically with Sammy Callahan, who was wearing white knee pads, the canvas was staining his knee pads severely. And that mm -hmm. is something that Johnny Gargano has talked about, how they all hated 
the GGUSA canvas because it would ruin their gear. And I noticed that, but I did not notice the apron or the, the canvas rather bunching up on people. But that also doesn't shock me. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like a weird thing. And I'm going to be interested as we watch like the, the other two shows of this triple shot this over the next two weeks. Like, is this the aberration here? Or as we get into the remainder of their second anniversary weekend, is this where we start really feeling the divergence and the fabled DGUSA fall off? Like, are we witnessing the start of it or is this an aberration? The fallout really happens later. Like, like I'm, I have my radar open for this. I know, like, I feel like we've talked about this a couple of times now in the serious case, but do you think this could be the start of the downturn? Just knowing what is ahead, what shows are booked, where they're booked and what is on the cards. I think it is in a way it is, perfect storytelling that the halfway point, the two-year anniversary show of a promotion that just fell short of hitting the fourth, or I guess the fifth-year anniversary show, so we're almost at the halfway point. I think the match quality will still be good, but the shows won't be loaded like they were in the first year. I think there will still be great, I guess, Dragon Gate proper interactions, but I think this is the demarcation point. This is when things go downhill. Okay. So we're on this we're on the similar page there. All right. So any other like big picture thoughts before we start breaking down the show itself? No, I, I will say I loved the opener, so let's talk about it. All right. So this again was at the Wonderland Ballroom. They kept on saying Boston because it's Revere. I mean, this is you know, like you never say that you are like in a suburb. You say you're in the big town, so it's in Boston. Fearless twenty eleven, it was on June third, twenty eleven. It was on WWN Live, I do have an observer note when we wrap up the show about how is the stream. Uh, th- this is, it opens up to a backstage promo with Tony Nese. Tony says this is the chance for him to show the rule, the, the whole world who he is. And this is just, I mean, like, Tony Nese is a baby here. This is, like, very much someone who's not experienced in giving promos and really is not really known for being a mic worker. And, like, 10 years from that point, not a good, not a good promo to start the show. No, uh, a rough promo to start the show just because Tony Nese, and it's not his fault. You, you know, give it a big opportunity, you know, early right. in his career, looked terrified. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and like watching when we get into the freestyle, did definitely be like, oh, yeah, no, he's a baby. But then we go straight to the show. It is Shima with his, with his manager, the manager of champions of Austin Aries, facing off against Rich Swan, who is accompanied by Johnny Gargano. In a singles match, Shima defeats Swan in 8 minutes and 49 seconds with the Meteora. In case, I know you really like this match, so I want you to go first. Like, I like this match, but I don't think I like this match as much as you did. This follows the simple formula of Shima beating people up, which is a really yes. fun... Yes, <laughs> It's a really fun match structure. I'm always going to be a little bit higher on this match than most other people because I think for as great of a fighting babyface champion Shima is... His best work is when he is being blatantly rude and disrespectful to people, and Rich Swan felt the wrath of Shima's, just just for lack of a better term, his dickish side in this match. Uh, there's a moment where Shima suplexes Rich Swan on the outside, and the outside of the ring is a hardwood floor, which I have a feeling was just a... a a pain for these guys to work. It seems like it might be slippery, kind of hard to work around. But when you suplex somebody onto a hardwood floor, it makes a great sound. So I'm not saying I recommend it, but as a viewer, I was quite entertained by it. 
There's also a moment which I, I don't know if, if if you if this stuck out to you at all, but Shima goes to Irish Rip Irish Whip Rich Swan and Swan does like a standing shooting star press out of it, which is very impressive. Yes. But he lands on his feet and then Shima just drop kicks him in the back and it is it is a wonderful, wonderful moment. And then unfortunately we go to the finish where Swan goes for a standing four fifty, but Austin Aries, who is at ringside, stands up on the apron, distracts Rich Swan, and then, you know, a few minutes later, Shima's able to hit the Meteora for the win. I'm high on it. I know I'm high on it. I don't really like the fact that Aries played any sort of role in this match, but I like the format of this match so much. I think the formula is so effective. It is a three and a half star opener for me. See, I went gentleman's three. That's and I why think I, that's enti- that's entirely fair. And like, I guess the other side of this, like, you know how much I love Dikashima. You know, like how much I've opined about the class of 2016 versus veterans in December of 2016. You know how like I love Dikashima. That's you're absolutely right. Like. Whenever he taps into the crazy Max style and just becomes like the most disrespectful person, that's usually the best character, and that's probably most closest representative of his personality, I think it's fair to say. And this is a time where Ronin is in such a bad shape that like I knew and I know I've been pushing that case that Ronin, like, are they ever gonna make Ronin feel like something? Are they ever gonna make Ronin feel like something? Really, other than Johnny Gargano calling uh, Shima a transphobic slur have not really had, like, the opportunity where, like, Ronan felt like they were getting one up here. And with, like, Rich Swan, who was a guy who's going to be around Dragon Gate proper, pretty much, like, coinciding with the rest of the run of the promotion, would have liked to see a little bit less of Shima eating him up here. I think that's my frustration. Like, as, like, the Shima as being a pissed-off guy, beating up someone, just eating their lunch, the Shima eat-your-lunch match, like, three stars is the floor. And maybe it's just how frustrated I was on thinking, like, Come on, is Ronan ever going to feel like they're in this rivalry whatsoever? No, it didn't really feel like that. So that was my frustration with that. I I think had this match taken place, but it was Chuck Taylor instead of Rich Swan or Johnny Gargano instead of Rich Swan, I would have had a bigger issue with it. Although I have complained about the fact that Rich Swan has been booked horribly and has been booked so weak by Drangate USA, he is the weakest of the three on the Ronan, Ronan totem pole. So I don't totally have an issue with the way this was presented. I think there is a far bigger crime committed against the Ronan push later on in this show. Oh, absolutely. It's probably the thing that tanks Ronan. Like, more so than WrestleMania weekend. We will get into that, because I'm fired up about it, just thinking about it. But this is, He's fired like, up? I, I mean... Rich Swan had a, a great babyface comeback in this match. Like, that was the thing that, like, I was like, okay, this is just Shima eating someone up. And then, like, Rich Swan had, like, his comeback. It was a solid comeback. But when he tried to go for the standing 450 and, like, just that was basically it. There was, like, a little bit of miscommunication where I feel like that they were trying for the perfect driver and they went for it again. Shima looked like he was about to flip out. But it just was, like, a match that, like, with how you feel about Shima and how you feel about his match type is probably going to be your opinion of this match. I feel like this is pretty reflective. I'm excited just because Rich Swan is good in this match, but by the next triple shot, Rich Swan is about to be so good and will have improved so much because he starts going over to Japan regularly after this, after this triple shot. So I'm excited to see the progression and evolution of Rich Swan because, and I, I'm sure I've said this before, but you know, when Swan signed with the WWE, 
my take on him was he doesn't necessarily have the match quality or the resume to back this point up. But when I watch Rich Swan wrestle 2014-2015, he's like a top 15 guy in the world. Like, I think he becomes that good and is just, you know, the difference between him and insert New Japan guy is the New Japan guy has the opportunity to have those great matches. Rich Swan was never pushed as the top guy in any company, but he's a guy who... You know, if you needed a a three and three quarter four star match on an American indie show at that time, you point to, you pointed to Rich Swan, and and we are so close to seeing that dramatic and rapid improvement. And even here, he's very good. But I just I like what's to come with Rich Swan. I'm going to be very excited to watch his matches going forward. Yeah, that's entirely fair. Uh, it, it's going to be real interesting because it's just going to be like a two month stint before he's brought back because he's back for the September shows, right? Yes. Okay, so like he he goes on like the the. Uh, run and dragon gate that he talks about like that was originally supposed to be so long and they ended up keeping him forever so it was something that like we're about to embark on that as well after this we had a freestyle all everyone came out to the same music which was very distracting and they don't really like decide on okay how we're going to do this but this was a this was a six-way freestyle had eric cannon versus alice cologne versus ar fox versus brody lee versus scott reed versus tony Nese. Uh, Eric Cannon got the one of a brain buster on Alex Cologne. You did, in two you, did, you did skip over the John Davis backstage segment where Gabe says from behind the camera, all right, John, we're ready for your promo. And then John goes, I'll do my talking in the ring. And then they cut to the freestyle, which was the biggest waste of time ever. And it made John Davis look goofy, which is unfortunate. As for the freestyle, here's the deal. I have never enjoyed Alex Cologne. I'm sure he's a nice guy. I don't get him. I don't want to watch him. I'm annoyed that he is in Drangate USA because I actually thought he was the weak link in a in a freestyle that wasn't very good. But between Brody and Scott Reed, who makes his debut here, and Eric Cannon and AR Fox, and also the debuting Tony Nese, there's a lot of talent in this match. But I, th- this just didn't deliver in any way. It was a lot of young guys. And the way Brody was positioned in this match, he didn't exactly lead anybody, which I don't think is his fault, but it was... In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, "Ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from Arena Club com the only repack that provides real value a complete view of all possible cards and clear hit rates for each one now when i buy slab packs at arena club it finally feels like i know what i'm getting i was able to open an arena club slab pack and and i'll be honest it was a lot better than what you normally do say you go to a card show and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying hey look at some random cards whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club 
You get a display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net, arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Just a lot of young guys doing spots, and then we had the finish. Yeah, like Alex Colon did stick out here. Weirdly enough, Alex Colon had a great death match with Stronghearts member Zachary Wentz a couple weeks ago. So that was the thing. He found his niche. Alex Colon found his niche, but DGUSA was not that niche. And yeah, uh, there was a really funny uh, Rob Naylor line saying that someone was a little more James Worthy than per- than Purvis Ellison, which popped me. <laughs> that was a great line. There's also there's a great Naylor moment in this match where it's the best spot of the match where there's three guys standing behind the ring post in the corner and Brody Lee looks like he's about to do a dive, and then A.R. Fox starts running, and Brody Lee turns around and back body drops A.R. Fox outside the ring, over the ring post, onto a group of guys, and Naylor just high-pitched scream yells, A.R. Fox, and it's like, that is is exactly what this promotion needed at the time, because you can tell Naylor, first of all, is loving all of the young talent in this match, but also, you can just tell throughout the show, he's having fun watching the show, and I think he's a very good commentator, and him calling A.R. Fox matches just makes sense. Yeah, it's something where, like, where we talked about how uh, Chikarsen, like, was like the solid color guy that was able to like compliment Lenny whatsoever. Rob adds a different element to it, which is always something that I feel like fits, as you said earlier, fits the vibe here because that was the most insane spot of the match. It was like turning the usual uh, Air Fox uh, topic on Hello over the top turnbuckle into a back body drop, and Rob just like flips out as Rob is wont to do. And that was the high point of this match. Like the finishing stretch was was okay. There was like a little moment where Eric Cannon got in the ring with Brody Lee early on in the match. He said, "Nope, not wanting any part of that." <laughs> I thought that was funny, but that this was match, good. but this match was not it. This match was really not it. No, there was a moment where Eric Cannon does a swinging neckbreaker and yells "Duf" as he's doing the neckbreaker. Right. Yes, and I I understand what he was going for, but it was objectionably not cool, and it like. It set the DUF gimmick back a little bit because there is a lot, a lot of Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan on this show. And for the most part, I'm okay with that. But 
the dirty ugly fucks as they would be go on to as they would go on to be named on this show they shouldn't yell their initials when doing swinging neckbreakers it looked bad yeah it was cringe uh then we had a new video for the first time we had a way of the ronin vi- pardon me we had a way of the ronin video and guess what it's available now on dvd so that was the show from Milwaukee. So this gives you an idea of why they really wanted out of that pay-per-view deal because now they were able to put out this DVD, which was yeah, it's uh, it, already we're seeing the the turnaround time on these DVDs. I just I can't I can't imagine dealing with that in 2011 I, when streaming VOD isn't necessarily a, an available or reliable platform. Right. Yeah. So Way of the Ronin was September 26 to 2010. So. It is almost nine months. That's terrible. Put out this DVD. Terrible. But then we had Ricochet going up against Sumi Yokosuka. Ricochet, of course, Blood Warrior, Sumi Yokosuka, Mochizuki Army. Sumi Yokosuka won this with a Mugen in 12 minutes and 32 seconds. And at this point, best match on the card, and for obvious reasons. Best match on the card, not a great match. I think these two... Two years down the road uh, in King of Gate had a ridiculous match that I right. would highly recommend if you can if you can find it because it's not even one that I have tucked away anywhere. But the Ricochet versus Yokosuka match from that was King of Gate 2013. And as I dive through Ricochet's tournament history, which is quite lengthy uh, to get to it, it is the May 25th, 2013 show where Ricochet defeats Asumu and then Ricochet defeats Shingo in the finals. That is a tremendous, tremendous Drangate show. What I liked here was that Ricochet had his knees targeted the entire match. Asumu brutalizes Ricochet's knees, and there is a small moment in this match where I think Ricochet sells the knees exceptionally. And this is not the leg-selling podcast. I have no interest in that topic typically. It is a very boring, very stale topic but ricochet gets his knees worked over susubu is just picking him up and dropping him on his knees over and over again ricochet finally gets a moment to breathe knocks susumu to the outside does a space flying tiger drop to the floor which you might think is is counterproductive given how much his knees are in pain but as soon as he hits that move he collapses to the ground and holds his knees and he's not really able to build momentum off of that and i thought that was a terrific terrific spot and a great job of selling from a young ricochet and and that was for me the high point of this match yeah it's something where so sumi yokosuka might be and of course this is one of the things that of course we'd say might be the best person to pair up against a young up-and-coming wrestler like he understands like okay this these are your things this is how i'm going to get you over we've seen we saw him do it during his open the brave gate reign last year we, we've seen it just off and on. Like, he's someone that, like, I mean, him versus Ada was, like, Ada's first great singles match, you know? So it's just something where you you have him in this role, and I feel like that he knew. It was like, okay, the logical thing for me here is I'm going to spend the first three minutes of this match doing, like, nonstop knee breakers. And it looked brutal, and it, it made sense that, like, Ricochet was like, okay— I'm going to get adrenaline going. I'm going to get adrenaline going, and that's going to get me through the rest of this match. So he's able to do the space flying tiger drop. And then he does go for the, he does hit the 630 later on, which I can buy because the adrenaline flowing. And it just was very well worked. They found a way to work in a second rope Mugen, which was insane at this time. And it just was something that, even in my notes, I said, this is really good. This would be even better in a few years. 
So completely. It's uh, it, it, what did you give it in terms of stars? Because I liked the match, but I, I judging from the way you're talking about, it, I think you were you were higher on it than I was. I went three and a half. Okay, well, okay, I went three and a quarter, so we're not too far off. It was no, again, yeah. it was very much laying the groundwork for a later great match. It's. I believe, and I could be wrong, and I, and I should have looked this up beforehand. I'll look it up now. This might have been Ricochet's first singles match in Dragon Gate USA. Because um, he I think worked it was. The, tag, the tag team tournament, and then he worked uh, the Open the Southern Gate main event, which was a tag, and then, you know, the Mercury Rising Six Man was off the next night due to injury. And if you go back the prior year, he is in tag matches. Oh, he wrestled Granakuma on a singles match in Milwaukee on the way of the Ronin show. But the, I guess the first real challenge for Ricochet, his first high-profile singles match, because other than that, he was working four-way freestyles or some various form of a tag match. And in 2011, when he's not in the ring with Pac, Ricochet is not quite at that level where he can have really great singles matches, but they are coming uh, slowly and surely by the end of this by the end of this project, there will be a laundry list of great Ricochet singles matches to choose from. Yeah, I'll say this. You all know at this point how much of a prospect dork I am. This is really when you should start like, keeping an eye on Ricochet in this promotion because he's already at this level. We've seen him step up from being the guy being made in one night and then the next night having a rather disappointing match with Granakuma. Track what's going to happen with Ricochet over the next nine shows of the year. It's going to be a blast. But yeah, no, three and a half stars. And again, this is something that they would revisit and better themselves in that King of Gate in 2013, which is the one that Ricochet won. It was the first ever Gaijin to win King of Gate. I would also keep track of Ricochet's muscle mass as the year oh, goes yeah. along. That is something that will, while why his while his experience grows and his match quality increases, his muscle math, mus, man, I cannot talk, his muscle mass goes through the roof. And that's another thing you can credit to Pac as well. <laughs> yes, very much so. So then we had a backstage promo, and this kind of covers what we were talking about before with uh, Chuck Taylor being out. Uh, they said that Ronan's going to be shorthand this weekend, but Gar- Gargano will take care of Austin Aries, and then they, he says they'll be fine without Chuck Taylor. So effective way if you were someone that didn't keep up with stuff to know why Chuck Taylor was on the show. You know, I have, I have I, a question about this promo, Mike. Okay. Did Ronan ever have merchandise? Because... Yes. Johnny Gargano and, and Rich Swan cut this promo and drank it USA t-shirts, matching t-shirts, mind you, and I thought they looked like total dorks wearing those shirts. Yes. Uh, they had some uh, drawings of the three of them on a t-shirt that were like cartoon images. Of them I remember a TVs. DUF shirt like that. I don't remember a Ronin t-shirt like that. Yeah, and they had it in stock at the WWN Live store forever. The, n- not a big merch mover Ronin was, at least that t-shirt. <laughs> so... But yeah, no, it, it's something that it came out like also like towards the end of their run too. Like Chuck Taylor was already almost out of the company for that one run, you know? So Yeah, well, Gabe has never, for for as much as he's good at merchandising, has never been his strength. Still never got my Blood War, not my Blood War, yeah, still never got my Blood Warriors t-shirt. We'll, we'll send him an email. We'll send him a strongly worded email and <laughs> make sure he gets you that Blood Warriors t-shirt that you desperately deserve. I mean, I paid 40 bucks for it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it was a Blood Warriors t-shirt from Japan. How about this? Gabe, you're probably listening to this. And if you're not, here's the plan. You send me a DGUSA turnbuckle, and we're clear. We're good. That's fair. Mike, Mike 
almost willed Havakach Yoshino into existence. And the only thing that stopped him was a global pandemic. So I oh, no. think if... we can get I think we can get a Dragon Gate USA turnbuckle delivered to this man's house. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. I have powers of speaking things into existence. We've seen this many times before. We, we've almost seen the greatest example of it if it wasn't for the the thing. The we thing. Had, the thing. But was what was also a thing, and something that, you know, I hate Sammy Callahan, but I loved this match. Sammy Callahan versus Misaki Mochizuki. Misaki Mochizuki won with a shin, with a shin Saikyo high kick in 12 minutes and 54 seconds. And I think I might be higher on this than you, Case. I went three and three quarters on this. I, now, well, this is me. Whenever I like, I post the uh, vine of what's better than this guys being dudes. This was that match for me. Mike, same rating for me. Three and three okay. quarters. And and All I right. will tell you what I was. You know, the first quarter of this show was just such a bummer because the crowd is dead and the building is bare and there's technical issues and I don't like some of the guys on the show and I'm sitting there thinking, man. I miss Davey Richards. And then Masaki Mochizuki and Sammy Callahan hit the ring. And all I could think watching this was what if Sammy Callahan, instead of becoming a mall goth and doing Jeff Jarrett walking brawls for his entire career, what if he wrestled this hard-nosed style that he wrestled in this match? What if he was, you know, uh, maybe not the, the track star and the cardio king that Davy Richards was, but he still wanted to win matches and put his nose to the grindstone and prove that he was the best wrestler out there instead of spitting on people and throwing people into chairs. Because, look, Masaki Mochizuki, we've said it a million times. He's one of the ten greatest wrestlers to ever live. It is not hard to have a great match with Masaki Mochizuki, but given the way this match was worked, I thought Callahan completely held his own against Mochizuki, and he did it because he worked a style that wasn't embarrassing. He worked a dumb jock style, even if Callahan is more of a trench coat wearing kid than a dumb jock. Yeah, like, I'm just going to read off my, my, my notes about this one. This is what I said for, for my first note Sammy really fucked up this week. <laughs> My second note, Mochizuki kicks Sammy's hand so hard that's one of the most mean things I've seen in a while. Third yeah, note. That is, that is true. This is the kind of matches that really meshes the talent real well. My conclusion, rad. Like, this is just, like, guys being dudes. Uh, Mochizuki works Sammy's thing. This is the one match that, like, the really dumb, hardest hitter in the East Coast line actually makes sense because he takes his elbows and strikes out. They work around the... Uh, stretch muffler and an ankle lock in a really well way and you know for a match that's 13 minutes long this match perfect length what would happen around duf for the rest of the show went on way too long but for this this worked and this is like something that like when you bring in misaki mochizuki i'll give gabe credit for this he has found the right people to have the matches with misaki mochizuki and it's something to watch because he will be back again in dgusa he always picks the right people for him and it's something that i always find remarkable about this and and even for, like, me as a guy who, like, in 2011, I liked Misaki Mochizuki. Not to the level I love Misaki Mochizuki now, but, like, watching back, this is like, you know, this is how you use Misaki Mochizuki if he's not going to be over every, every like, triple shot. You have him in awesome matches like this. And I hate Sammy Callahan, but this match owned. I think Callahan, other than the dumb booking of him and Cannon leaving the freestyle match in Atlanta, 
Callahan has been fine so far. I love that Tozawa match he had. I think he was fine in Philly. He's in a bad tag match on the United Finale show, but that's not really his fault. Callahan, for me, has been perfectly serviceable. I really liked Sammy Callahan before he signed with WWE in 2013. So this entire run, now again, there's going to be DUF stuff that uh, it would be incorrect to say it doesn't hold up because it never was good in the first place. No, it was but, terrible. But through this run, and and this will be an important marker because I'll say this about somebody later on in the show, through Fearless 2011, I really like Sammy Callahan. And the one other thing I will say about this match before we move on to the post-match is Callahan does a thing in this match that he's done in a few other matches he doesn't do it anymore because, again, he just, God, I just hate the way he presents himself now. But Callahan does a running forearm smash to a kneeling Mochizuki in this match where he completely cleans his clock. And it is something that I, I have always believed that should be Callahan's finisher. That he should use the stretch muffler when he needs to, but his finish should be him running full speed and knocking somebody out with a forearm. Because he does it against Mochizuki, and if he would have pinned him right there, I would have completely bought into that fall being legitimate. And that Sammy Callahan would have pinned the Open the Dream Gate champion. But of course, Mochizuki survived. He ended up kicking Callahan's head off. And it was three and three quarters, the jolt of electricity and energy that this show desperately needed up to this point. And then the energy in my books went out soon after because because Misaki Mochizuki is, if, if, if anything we say about Misaki Mochizuki, he is a fair and honorable person. You know, he's grown into the age that if you give Misaki Mochizuki a fight, he will shake your hand and he will respect you. So he wanted to give a handshake to Sammy Callahan. It turned out to be a massive bait, and it turned into this this entire pull part brawl between DUF and Mochizuki and Susumu that was awesome when it started. Cause I'm like, okay, no, it makes sense. They would turn on, but like they wouldn't want Mochizuki's respect. But then it went off for like a good solid seven minutes, like back and forth pull apart. Everyone, all the geeks from the top rope show hitting the ring, and it just went on forever. Case I hated like, like this turn from something. I was like, okay, this was rad to fucking hell DUF. I've already like. This has already started to get me against CUF just with the segment. I will say, segment went on too long, but I also think the wrong Japanese guys were in this brawl. If you put Naruki Doi in this situation, somebody that has a better understanding and adapts better to American wrestling, I think it becomes okay. But Mochizuki and Susumu are not necessarily the guys to have intricate pull-apart brawls, and it was just, they looked lost out there, and then it went on too long. It was a good idea in theory, and very poorly executed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Then we had a WWN live promo, and then we have our friend Lenny Leonard in the ring, as apparently he is the he is back at ring announcing for this show, and he brings out John Davis. John Davis so far, is disappointed, but he has issues with DUF, so come on out. DUF comes out, and then Pinky Sanchez comes out and begs to join him because he's a DUF as well. And then we have John Davis versus Pinky Sanchez. 10 minutes and 22 seconds until John Davis beats Pinky Sanchez with the three seconds around the world. So there's a lot to unpack here because I had in my notes when the Callahan match finished was – they keep on calling Callahan and Cannon the DUF, but to my knowledge, they hadn't actually explained what that meant. It's in no news wires. I, I mean, 
Callahan and Cannon refer to themselves as being dirty and ugly and not fucking caring in one of the Atlanta promos, but it was never really established that that was their group name until Pinky Sanchez came out and wanted to join them. And while I do think this match went a little long, I will say, and we will mark this as we go along, as of Fearless 2011, I enjoy Pinky Sanchez. Not a great match, but Pinky in particular, I thought was super entertaining. Oh, I hated this match. Pinky, Pinky I had lost. a feeling you would. I, I, I want to like the DUF because I think for what the promotion was turning into, it is not a bad idea. Now, it might be goofy at times just because it's, it's not subtle enough. And as we go along, we'll see if the match quality ever really delivers to any sort of great extent. But Callahan, Cannon, and Sanchez together on paper, I really don't hate that group. Callahan and Cannon sitting ringside and drinking a beer and then spitting that beer in Pinky Sanchez's face. I really don't hate that. Again, this match needed to be five minutes, not ten minutes long. But Pinky Sanchez, he's a weird-looking dude. He's got a weird style. But he just got thrown around by John Davis the entire time, and I really don't hate that. He got thrown around by John Davis for 11 minutes, basically. Too long. Again, too long. Could have been cut in half. But There was there was a miscount where the they ring the bell after a jackhammer that— for a match that was already not my cup of tea, just made it even worse. Yeah, the the, the false finish there, the literal false finish, that, that one hurt. Because, I mean, I, I gave it two and a half. I, I felt like this was average. Um, I was one gonna and give a half. It, I was going to give it two and three quarters when they messed up the finish uh, where Pinky kicked out, but they still counted three. And then everybody stared at each other. And then Davis said, okay, I'm going to keep going. And it was, it was very frustrating to watch. But... I don't know. I'm going to give Pinky Sanchez a chance. I, I, again, I agree with you. Way too long of a match. But Pinky's individual performance, I could not hate it. I went one and a half stars on this. I detested that this is not one of the worst matches in the promotion's history in my books. But it was a match that, you know, should have been four minutes. You should have had John Davis beat him down. Pinky Sanchez get a hope spot. And then three seconds around, around the world when we got out of here. Like the, the, like on a show that was already dragging and will drag more, this was just like this. And it kind of felt like to me, like John Davis is not the problem here. And I know I'm someone that was very critical of John Davis, at least while the promotion was happening. But now I'm kind of like, okay, I'm watching this and see like, what was it about John Davis that really kind of turned me off about this? He wasn't the problem here. Pinky Sanchez playing third rate soccer at Chikawa was the problem for me. So it we'll just, monitor, we'll, we'll monitor as we go along because I, Sure. I think by the end of this, I will not be as friendly towards Pinky Sanchez. But for now, his debut, his presentation, I I understand why people wouldn't like it. And again, I can't defend the match time. I completely agree with you there. But I don't know. I, I'm open to it. I'm excited to see what's in store for the DUF. Okay. Then we have a whole bunch of things. Like, we are really in the disaster portion of the show. DUF beat down po- Pinky and spat PBR in the face, as you mentioned. Air Fox had a promo. Like, Air Fox, like, I know at the time we're going to give him a shot. He's not a promo guy. Like, he came up short, but he'll do anything to beat Tazawa tomorrow. Then Johnny Gargano came out. Halfway through, the graduate cut out. And then it was just awkwardness. And then Austin Aries came out and cut a, a pre-match promo shitting on Ronan. And the last time I was able to make out anything on the microphone on this show. 
between the pre-match promo, the match, and then, Mike, was there a post-match promo here as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, there was. Okay. I, I, I remember it now. I just didn't have it on my notes, and I couldn't remember what show that was on. So a match that was 26 minutes long with a pre-match promo, with a post-match promo. Look, I said when he debuted, Austin Aries, despite whatever human he may be, and it doesn't seem like he's a good one, Austin Aries is one of my favorite wrestlers ever. I think, other than Brian Danielson, he has the best Ring of Honor portfolio of anybody in the history of that company. I love his TNA run. I thought his WWE run was great. I hate Austin Aries enjoying at USA. This was a 26-minute match that did not need to be 26 minutes that had the wrong guy go over because despite the story being told of Johnny Gargano being categorically better than Austin Aries in every possible way, Gargano still took the brain buster and was pinned in 26 minutes in a match that wasn't even bad. But it wasn't, it wasn't good. It certainly wasn't great. And Gargano losing this match. I do not understand it. Why I mean, Ronan continues to suffer to the hands of Austin Aries, I just do not understand. You're with me now on how Gabe treated Ronan. You have jo- you've joined me on that Gabe completely cut the the legs out of Ronan before Ronan even had a chance. Well, again, I was really concerned when they lost the Mercury Rising six-man tag, and I wanted to see what that next step was before I made the decision. But the next step is, you know, Shima, you know, kind of squashing Rich Swan, which makes sense. Like, it is Shima mm-hmm. and Rich Swan. But the 26-minute Gargano-Aries match, and you're telling me Gargano can't go over even by a roll-up? Aries has to pin him clean? I don't get it. And it's something where this match, like... I like the opening segments where it's like, oh, it's clear that Austin Aries is not taking Johnny Gargano seriously. Johnny Gargano had his number. He They made a big point of, oh, yeah, no, he's watched. Uh, I mean, we, we've seen Austin Aries now for seven years at this point at this level. He knows his big things. And they made the big comment about the headstand and like that didn't working. And then the idea of him just like shoving away the drop kick out of the headstand was like really, I really enjoyed it. And then they like went into like, there's been like, uh, I don't know why they weren't counted out. I mean, we, we've already seen the refs weren't tremendous on the show. They decided to, to base the match around the rail that one one partition the fans were based on case. That was just dumb. It just, like, was indulgent. Like, this match was indulgent. The referees kicked Aries' hands to break up, a, a, a like, a situation where he grabbed the ropes when he should have, like, been pulling Gargano away because it was Aries breaking the hold into a pinfall, which was just dumb as shit. There was a DVD on the apron that was really tight, and then after all the joking and the weirdness, LOL, Austin Aries wins. What are we doing here? I will say I did not hate the balcony spots as much as you did. Um, specifically, Austin Aries does brainbuster Johnny Gargano into a pile of chairs that I thought looked really good. That was and, tight. And I'm a little more lenient on count-out stuff, just because who cares? Um, but the, the referee kicking Aries' hand away is something that might work if referee Yagi does it in Japan. It does not work when a faceless, nameless referee does it in America. And again, just, uh, you, I mean, this entire Austin Aries run has just been self-indulgent. The pre-match promos before every match that, you know, his debut, he's bearing Ring of Honor, and then, you know, he's going into, oh, he feels lost, and maybe Dragon Gate USA is, is his home. Well, no, maybe I'm going to retire. This industry offers nothing for me. And now these Blood Warriors promos that, 
you know, I just, I don't, I just don't care because I, I think other than that Tozawa match, which is a Tozawa match to, to the highest degree. I mean, it is a peak right. Akira Tozawa performance and the Yamato match was very good, but it's also, it's Yamato. So who cares? You know, I can't give Austin Aries credit for that. Aries has just, man, he's been bad in this run. It is a, a real mark against him. When I look at, you know, greatest wrestler ever in those sorts of deals, I mean, Aries was somebody, I think, just off the top of my head, I think I had him at my number 40 spot in the 2016 Greatest Wrestler Ever poll. And this run being so high profile, and it's not like he's only here for, you know, a double shot and then goes home. I mean, he's here from October through the end of this weekend, and he has just been just objectively bad in so many different spots, and he works like he's above this promotion, and he doesn't fit into that Drangate family concept, where even, you know, even Callahan and Cannon, I can buy those guys, you know, of being a part of this process and wanting to see this company grow, and, you know, putting up the ring with Masato Yoshino, like, that all makes sense. Austin Aries, he can claim it's a character all he wants, it is ineffective at the end of the day when I just don't want to see this person anymore. It is the go-away heat, the dreaded go-away heat that I now have with Austin Aries and Dragate USA, which I just would have never thought when he came into this promotion because I, I had seen you know, the WrestleMania weekend stuff, which I really liked, and I, I, I hadn't seen the rest of his work in this company, and I have been horribly, horribly let down by it. I went three and a quarter on this. I went two and a half. Yeah, that's fair. I and for me to like give a match like that went like twenty six minutes and a match that really could have probably been like a defining match in like the lead up of the Gargano era of DGUSA. This was like the opportunity, and we'll get into this on uh, on the in the show two weeks from now. What led Austin Aries leaving the promotion? Because it's some it's some Aries shit. It is well, Austin the, Aries. Well, yes, the, the issue is that the beatdown of Ronan occurred when they lost the first tag titles match, and then they lost at Mercury Rising, and then they keep on taking hits from Blood Warriors here and there and everywhere. This is where you put Gargano over. Because it's just, at at this point, you know, what is the point? Because we're running shows three months apart, so it's not like you could say, oh, well, you know, we've only had this many shows, and Ronan is going to lose, and then they're going to get their win back, because by the time they get their win back, we're looking at the end of 2011, and it doesn't matter if you've run 12 shows or, you know, 36. We're still, that that time frame matters, and we're seeing Ronan now lose month after month, and even if it is only three or four shows, they are happening months and months apart and so those losses linger for longer periods of time and Gargano suffers greater as a result no I'm totally with you on this and then post-match we had a promo of Austin Aries that neither of us can make out I know I didn't have any notes I'm assuming you didn't because you made comments about the the promo as well did you make out any of this promo no I it was an Austin Aries post-match promo I admittedly didn't listen to a ton of it <laughs> and then we had a video DGUSA.com, they finally updated the DGUSA, go visit DGUSA.tv promo. I'm just happy because we didn't have five-year-old footage of WrestleJam anymore in this thing. <laughs> I liked the WrestleJam promo more. I, I miss that guitar oh. music now that I think about it. 
oh, oh no, the guitar music ruled, and that was like a better thing. But it was like, okay, finally you're using your own footage for this. You're not having footage of the Unbucks from the first weekend who haven't been in promotion for two years now. And you like don't a have... Cyber Kong double lariat, like a really early Cyber <laughs> Kong clip or something. Like it is, it is not only a collection of not their footage, it is a weird collection of footage that is used. Yes, and then we get into the title match. This was, as we mentioned earlier, for the Open the United Gate. This is the uh, Mochizuki Army team, which is something that I'm glad we only have to deal with this for this next two shows case, by the way, because that's going to change. That I, I felt myself getting tongue-tied on that. But it was Masato Yoshino and Pac making their second defense of the Open the United Gate. They were accompanied to the ring by Rich Swan and Susumi Yokosuka against Akira Tozawa and Yamato, who were accompanied out here by Masaki Mochizuki as... This basically was like a Mochizuki Army versus Mochizuki Army slash Akira Tozawa match. And this might be like the saving grace for the show for me. This match went 24 minutes and 26 seconds, and it was one of when Pac hit the 360 shooting star, a.k.a. the Black Arrow on Akira Tozawa. Yeah, I, I can't necessarily wax poetically about this match the same way that I maybe did the Pac versus Tozawa match or the Open the Southern Gate main event, or the United Philly Pac Ricochet tag match. But I will say, this is another legitimately great spreadsheet-worthy Pac match, as he continues to be, I think, far and away the MVP of this promotion. The only person that is close to him is Akira Tozawa, and they are often sharing the ring with one another at this time, so they go hand-in-hand. But it is not the Pac and Tozawa interactions that jumped out at me here. It is the Pac and Yamato interactions that made me incredibly excited to watch their Dreamgate, or I'm sorry, their Freedom Gate title match two shows from now. A show that I have not seen, a match that I have not seen, one that I am now anxiously awaiting because the Pac and Yamato interactions in this match were ridiculous. Both men on point, both men at peaks of their careers. I, I was just blown away by what they were capable of. Unfortunately, they had to work in front of a crowd that was largely silent for the entire show. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is another example, putting over Rob Naylor again, that he was great on color here, and they were able to, like, at least, like, they were imparting energy here because the crowd was not offering it whatsoever. And you, you were talking about being excited about Yamato and Pac. The thing that I got watching this match was, Man, it's a shame we never got a long-term Tozawa Yamato tag team. Because that is true. These two had some great chemistry. It was a lot of fun here. It was very deliberate on Pac, which is something that makes sense, of course, with Yamato defending the, the title the next night. There was like a very nice like little dig at the venue that Lenny made, saying, you see, one of the great things about Pac is, as he's getting older, he used to fly around everywhere. Now he picks his spots. I'm like, I don't <laughs> think he wanted to hit that uh, polished wood floor and then like you see some stuff out of like yoshino like there's a moment in this match where he does like this hammerlock driver that yeah i don't remember him doing too often and then i try to look up this move and usually i'm known as a move guy but the one that goes from like the head scissors to like the side slam he he does that that's not a move he does anymore but i always love how he does it because it's such like a different thing where like he like flows through and makes it into like a kind of a version of torbellino that looks like a side slam that happened on this and then an all-time spear from Yamato onto Pac and then hey Pac maybe wasn't flying around a lot but Yoshino did a tope in this match and when you know 
when Masato Yoshino, who was ranked one of the best flying wrestlers in the world for whatever reason the year previous, does a tope, it's for real. And it's, I went four and a half. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say your rating one more time. I went four and a half on this. Okay, I went four and a quarter. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the Yamato spear. I have that in my notes as well. I was like, wow, he really destroyed Pac with that spear. And it is... It is just a match that fell victim to the circumstance of being in the venue that it was in. If this happens in November of 2009 at the ECW Arena, uh, if this happens, I think even in Phoenix, although those shows didn't draw great, the crowds were were decent. Uh, if it happens at the one-year anniversary show, I think this match is much hotter. If it happens in Chicago or Milwaukee of 2010, I think this match is better as a result. But it just, just happens in front of this Revere, Massachusetts crowd that... It just didn't make any noise all night. And, and you look at the venue, and, well, maybe it was the venue that just sucked all of the air and any noise possible away from being picked up on the cameras. But you also you pan, and you see that there just aren't many people there. So it's a four-and-a-quarter start match for me. It's a great way to end the show. I think this and the Mochizuki versus Callahan match that I had at three-and-three-quarters and Mike did as well, those are well worth your time. I, I think those are really, really good matches. Again, I like the opener, Shima versus Swan quite a bit. Susumu versus Ricochet, good, not great. It's just a show. We already talked big picture, but just to circle back to it, it just felt familiar in an uncomfortable way because I've seen Dragon Gate USA shows like this. I watched Dragon Gate USA shows live like this where there's technical issues and the cards just loaded up with, well, you have your dream matches and your special challenge matches, and then there are these other guys that Gabe is going to tell a story with. And there was very little integration on the card. And it just felt low rent and just like another indie. Except for when Pac, Masato Yoshino, Akira Tozawa, and Yamato were in the ring. Because those are four all-time great. Those are four geniuses when it comes to pro wrestling. They were able to put on a worthwhile main event. Maybe a slight tier below what I've typically been rating Pac matches, but still four and a quarter. Well worth your time. And Fearless 2011, it is a show that happened. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, as we said earlier, we think this might be, we're going to keep track of this, if this is the start of the slide, but I think we both are of the opinion that this was the start of the infamous, like, oh, Dragon Gate USA had a lot of great, had some great shows and then just fell off a cliff. And I'm afraid that it might be starting now. Uh, two last things happened on the show before it cut to black. Pack grabbed the promo. He said he's coming for the Freedom Gate on Sunday and then starts to go home promo. Then he asked uh, Yoshino to say thank you for coming. And then, in case we had yet a fuck another Austin Aries promo. What's funny he... is that I, I am looking at the 411 Kevin Ford review of this show, and yeah. he mentions an Austin Aries promo. I I know I, know I watched this show until the very <laughs> end. I tuned this promo out. I did not know this happened. I have nothing in my notes about this promo. Uh, he says that tomorrow he's going against Yokosuka, and Shima told him not to worry about winning, but worry about taking him out. And that's it. I, I would worry about winning. I don't understand why this is Gabe's new thing of inflicting pain instead of winning. I, that's awful. No, I want to see guys win matches. That's I, I hate that direction. That is, I'm glad I didn't see that, because I, I, I will say, Mike, I mean, I, I enjoyed this show more than United Finale. Because I think United Finale yeah. is top to bottom the weakest show they've put on. What do you think? Was this show better or worse than the last Atlanta show opened the Ultimate Gate? The show with Jimmy uh, Ray versus Johnny Gargano. 
Uh, there's a six-way Chuck Taylor versus Brody Lee, a United Gate title match that you liked more than I did, uh, DUF versus Dark City Fight Club, Aries versus Jacobs, Tozawa versus Mox, and Yamato versus Tozawa. I think this is stronger than uh, Ultimate Gate 2011. Okay, like, I agree. It, it, it's something where, like, even though I think I liked uh, Yoshino and Pac versus Shima and Doi a bit more, even though I give it the same rating, uh, that was a show that, I mean, there was a lot of stuff I remember when we were talking about this that was a lot higher on than you were, and then just a lot of stuff there that mean like, the whole, like, end of Moxley's stint there, even though it had Yamato and Tozawa have a pretty solid match there, just, like, something about these last two shows, they found a ways to put, like, a really bitter note on these shows, and... You didn't need the Austin Aries promo, and that just like further infuriates me that this guy almost tanks a company in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, and I don't think I'm being hyperbole. I don't think I'm being too hyperbolic about that case. I mean, you talked about this thing like we will talk about overall Austin Aries in two weeks, but that's a cardinal sin that we're going to be bringing up later. And it did not seem like that he was a much of a value add other than people at WrestleMania weekend liked having him around. Yeah, that is that is fair to say. That is Fearless 2011. Mike, next week we are talking Uprising 2011. Would you like me to break down this card for you real quick? I would absolutely love to. Nothing out. Nothing will help me end the show not thinking about Austin Aries until we talk about this. This, this well, will be a great note to leave on. Well, I, I, th- this will be an interesting show because we start off with an eight-way freestyle with John Davis, Scott Reed, Caleb Conley, Flip Kendrick, Luis Linden, Sammy Callahan, Pinky Sanchez, and Alex Colon. Oh, boy. Brody <laughs> Lee versus Tony Nese. Austin Aries versus Susumu Yokosuka. A four-way freestyle match between Shima, Masato Yoshino, Yamato, and Johnny Gargano. There's a singles match on this show between Alex Reynolds and fucking Papa Don. I can't believe in 2011 I, we are already forced to watch Papa Don matches. I will have, I'm sure, an essay next week uh, <laughs> over just... Fuck, I don't want to watch that. Eric Cannon versus Masaki Mochizuki. That sounds good. Akira Tozawa versus AR Fox. And a main event of Pac, Ricochet, and Rich Swan in a three-way freestyle. That is Uprising 2011. We'll cover that next week as well as an extensive breakdown of everything that happened in Drangate proper from about April through the beginning of June. Well, we have a lot. Well, I think for the triple shots, this is pretty much like the first show, we're going to catch you up on DGUSA stuff. Second show, we'll talk about Japan. And then third show, we'll talk about the world we're at large. So we have a lot to talk about. And uh, we need to figure out some things because there's a very important thing that happens less than a week after the show that happens in Japan that we need. That I think we will say, we'll say for the next triple shot that it is something that we've talked about a lot. We're coming really close to him coming home. The the absolute boy Akira Tozawa is about to be back in Dragon Gate. And it is earth-shattering, if I say so myself. It is, as I said earlier, one of the five biggest uh, shows that weren't big shows, like monthly shows in Dragon Gate history. So that's going to do it for this episode of of Open the Voice Gate, Rewind, and Rewatch. Thank you all for listening. Uh, you could follow the podcast account at Open Voice Gate. Both of us will tweet there if you need just a good account to get your thoughts and your news from dragon gate hit us up there you could follow myself at fujiheya usually it's it's me talking about dragon gate or AEW stuff or unless there's something really funny like thinking shane mcmahon is papa john schnatter 
you could follow Case on Twitter at underscore in your case. And Case, is there anything else you wanted to hit on or plug before we get out of here? I know I want to be done talking about this show. The more I think about it, the more upset I am. Yep. Well, that's it for us here on Open the Voice Gate. We'll, we'll catch you next week as we talk about Uprising 2011. Take care, everyone.